It was some of the teachings of John the Baptist, for example, like the idea, the concept of uh, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's referenced in First Enoch, the book of the parables. And it, I think it's very possible that John the Baptist was a member of that Essene community near the town of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from. That's where scholars believe they were from. There, there's uh, a series of cliffs that were occupied in the second and first centuries BC, overlooking the town of Magdala. And it's, it's really cool when you go to Magdala on the tour and uh, look up there, see, see all these holes in the side of the cliff. It's like, wow. So these guys were living up there and while they were living up there, looking out of their caves and seeing Mount Hermon in the distance, somebody up there 2,000 years ago was writing this stuff about the chosen one, the anointed one, the son of man who would come and bring justice to earth and punish the wicked angels, the wicked kings, wicked landowners, and so on. Many millennia ago, at the peak of Mount Hermon in the Golan Heights, a group of divine beings known as the Watchers, or Sons of God, descended in an act of rebellion against their king, Yahweh. By teaching them the secret knowledge of the cosmos, they sought to wrestle dominion of the earth away from humanity. They bore children with them, and their offspring were both human and divine. These giants are the demigods of old, and the events that transpired would forever alter the course of human history. At Camp Hermon, we discuss the oddities of the ancient world and their lingering impact on our world today. Welcome. Hey campers, welcome back to Camp Hermon. It's Tori. I'm here with Chris. What up, Tori? We are super stoked to share this week's episode with you guys. Um, a couple quick notes. If you haven't gone to our website, camphermon.com, we have some really cool new merch. What do we have, Chris? We've got the Giants Are Real shirt, the Nephilim shirt. We've got mugs, stickers, all the things. And one of the great things about the merch is anything you guys buy, it just supports the show. So we love that. Appreciate that. We've got mugs. You can go get mugged. You can mug your friend. Yeah. Send them and a you Camp Hermon mug. You know what goes great in a Camp Hermon mug, Tori? Um, Kevlar Joe's coffee, of course. Yes the Bigfoot blend. So you can go to kevlarjoe.com. It's also available on our website, I believe, right? No, but if you go on our homepage, there is a link uh, to Kevlar Joe and uh, we've got a promo code where you can get like 10% off all the things yeah. guys, all this stuff just helps to support what we're doing uh, with, with Campermon. Um, so yeah, if you guys feel led, like you want to sponsor the show, support us, Get merch, membership, whatever. We appreciate yeah. it. Another awesome way to support us, seriously, is if you guys leave a review or just share episodes. We love seeing, I mean, um, you know, people will send me on social media. People are tagging us in their stories. Um, it means a lot, and that really goes far for us. So you guys know, I mean, social media is, um, social, it's it's a big deal these days, right? Yep, yep. And guys, on Today's show, it's tonight. We record at night. So we always say tonight, but it episode ends up dropping in the, in the morning. So that's always kind of weird. But we just got done talking to Derek Gilbert. So the episode you guys are about to hear is with Derek Gilbert and Tori. He blew my mind. He got into the first book of Enoch. He gave us like a whole geography lesson on Israel. 
Um, I really want to go with him and Sharon to Israel. They're going in 2024 and 2025. So if the world hasn't ended yet, I'm going to be saving my pennies for that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Awesome. All right. Well, Tori, without further ado, here it is. I'm going to miss their their presentations because I'll be I'll be on the road um, Friday night, but um, cool. I'll get yeah, to Judith is going to come. Oh, is she? Awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's going to be great. Derek, you and Sharon are speaking there, if I'm We're not speaking mistaken. speaking on Saturday, right. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I'll, I'll be there for that. So we'll be sharing some of the video that we shot at uh, during our, our pre-tour expedition with Doug Van Dorn. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, I, I think, and, and this is just inspired by a... Um, uh, an exchange that's been going on for the last 36 hours, 48 hours on Twitter with, with a fellow who took offense to me um, defending the Book of Enoch. And, <laughs> and you know, I, it, it's inspiring me to dig into more research because I, I'm certainly not an expert on the Book of First Enoch, but um, what I've read has convinced me that Mike Heiser's uh, reader's companion for the books of Enoch should be required reading for all Christians mm. and, and that I need to do more of a deep dive into it. Most of us who heard of first Enoch think, okay, book of the watchers. All right. Confirms Genesis chapter six. The narrative tells us what happens to what happened to the watchers, uh, Shemiyaza and Azazel or Azael. And, um, you know, it also, uh, it reveals some things about the netherworld that we don't read about in the old Testament that show up in the new Testament. So, you know, I, I knew that stuff from talking to Mike and interviewing Mike Heiser before he passed um, over the years. The, the description that we have, this mental image that we Christians have of hell being this underworld place of uh, fire and flame and torment and burning punishment, that's not in the Old Testament anywhere. When you look at the Old Testament, look at the few references that are there to the grave or to shale, and it's not in there, but it is in First Enoch. And those first 36 chapters, the Book of the Watchers, um, probably written in the third century BC, uh, that, that brings forth this information that is then repeated in the New Testament and validated by Jesus because he talks about, you know, Gehenna is a place where the fire never dies and the worm, uh, uh, oh gosh, I've forgotten the verse, but essentially confirming that it is, that it is a place of fiery torment. Um, but then you get into, and this is something I only stumbled onto about uh, a year ago, six months ago, really. Um, the second section of the book of First Enoch, beginning at chapter 37 through about chapter 71, called the book of parables, is prophetic. And it is there, and, and this was written in the first century BC, probably in the la toward, the, toward the end of the first century BC. So just before the birth of Jesus, okay, around the time of the death of Herod the Great. And it describes a messianic character who's called the chosen one, the anointed one, um, and most frequently, the son of man. Yeah. Now, there's a mention in Daniel chapter 7 to one like a son of man, but he's not given any real definition. He's there at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, and he's given a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting dominion. But he doesn't do anything, or at least he's not given any kind of role in Daniel. And so I pointed this out on Twitter and this guy just started, you know, fighting with me about it. Like, okay, I, I'm like the guy in that old Monty Python sketch who's willing to pay a five pound note to have an argument. 
<laughs> so, um, and I've learned over 25 years of marriage to Sharon that that's not a good way to maintain a healthy marital relationship. Um, so there are times when it's really not worth the argument. But in, in this case, you know, for me, it's like iron sharpening iron. Okay, this guy challenges me on something. And I go back and I, I look and I dig it up. So this is inspiration. For me, this is inspiration to dig in and, and make sure that I'm right. Yes. <laughs> which, which is maybe not the right spirit for learning. And so I'm trying to be gentle in my responses because I don't want to be, you know, that guy who comes across like, hey, because I said it, you should just accept it because, you know, I, you know, I don't have scholarly credentials or anything. I just want to see how the pieces all fit together. And yeah. when you go back into First Enoch, that second section, the book of the parables, you see that not only is this messianic character called the Son of Man, a title that Jesus applied to himself 82 times in the New Testament, is given definition. He's the one who acts as the agent of God's judgment to punish the wicked. That's not in Daniel. That's not anywhere. That's not in any Jewish writing prior to the first century BC. And the, and the book of First Enoch. So um, that to me is fascinating, and even more so because it's the consensus of scholars who study this stuff, that that part of First Enoch was probably written by a community of Essenes, not at Qumran, down near the Dead Sea, but a community of Essenes who lived near the town of Magdala on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, within eyesight of Capernaum, where Jesus based his ministry, within eyesight of Bethsaida, where Peter Philip and Andrew, the first three disciples lived within eyesight of Mount Hermon. And so you're thinking, wow, maybe those silent centuries between Malachi at the end of the Old Testament and Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament weren't so silent after all, because there's some legitimate stuff in First Enoch that shows up in the New Testament, which is the whole point of Mike Heiser's book, Reversing Hermon. But then you've got people out there who just don't want to hear that. Say, You're saying that Jesus was inspired by Enoch. No, that's not what I'm saying. Not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that Jesus was teaching things that was not present in any Jewish writing before First Enoch. So maybe whoever wrote First Enoch, and there's multiple authors, because uh, again, those two sections were written years apart, decades apart. Um, maybe they were getting legitimate divine revelation. Or maybe they were just really intense scholars of the Old Testament who dug into the prophecies of Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah and, and actually fleshed out some things that are not in the Old Testament. It's no different than saying, you know, you can learn a lot of biblical truth by reading the writings of Charles Spurgeon or Francis Schaeffer. Right. But we wouldn't, we wouldn't say, okay, let's put those in the Bible. Yeah. It's not canonized, but it doesn't mean it's not true. Right. The other thing about that uh, book of parables, that second part of Enoch that's so interesting, is the fact that it was written in the north near the Sea of Galilee, and that's where Jesus based his ministry, Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. So the ground had been prepared there, and in fact, this is one of the things I'll be talking about at the Go Therefore conference in July, um, why we believe Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River north of the Sea of Galilee, not down near Jericho like everybody seems to think. And, you know, I, that's uh, we're running counter not only to the United Nations and the Kingdom of Jordan, which is spending $300 million to develop that site into a tourist place. Um, we have friends of ours who are credentialed archaeologists who defend the location down near Jericho. But um, 
I don't think that's the case. Not only that, this location north of the Sea of Galilee is um, directly below a megalithic monument that looks just like Gilgal Rephaim. Two miles north of the Sea of Galilee, it looks like Gilgal Rephaim, about half the size, but it's on the bank of the Jordan River. And it's less than half a mile from Bethsaida, where Peter, Andrew, and Philip were, were you know, their hometown. So it's, it's astonishing. You put that together with this stuff from First Enoch and the prophecies of the coming Son of Man. What did Jesus say at the base of Mount Hermon? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And then he said to Peter, who do you say that I am? That's how he declared his divinity. So, I mean, wow. fitting all that together is just astonishing. It's so cool. And I'm so excited for July. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, sorry, and this is off topic, but like, do you have like a go-to answer for Christian? Cause I've encountered a lot of Christians who have a problem with, um, or who like aren't even willing to read the book of Enoch. And to me, it's kind of like, look, it's yeah. Like, I don't know, as a Christian, it's not like you think if you read something secular, it's going to totally dismantle your faith. Right. So like, yeah. Why not read it and like spit out the bones? Like if something doesn't, I don't know. Well, yeah. And, and this is, uh, again, this is this uh, discourse that I'm having with this, this gentleman um, trying to explain to him why it's worth at least reading for those sections that, that help understand better some of the weird sections of the Old Testament and also mm-hmm. some of the things that we find in the New Testament. I don't think, I, I know I didn't, you know, even to this day, because like I said, just coming across some scholarship on the book of First Enoch and the book of parables specifically less than a year ago. It's kind of opening my eyes like, well, I didn't realize how much I was reading into the Old Testament. I mean, I'd always assumed, okay, Jesus, yes, the son of man, that's from Daniel chapter seven. But when you look at Daniel seven, there's nothing there about the one like a son of man, which in the Old Testament, by the way, that phrase in Hebrew just was a way of saying human one. Uh-huh. Because that phrase that phrase shows up um, dozens of times in the book of Ezekiel, where the angel is saying, come, son of man, and I will show you, blah, 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 blah. It's just saying, come on, human, follow me. Mm-hmm. But this one that Daniel sees, one like a son of man at the right hand of the ancient of days, who's given a kingdom. Okay, that's the only mention of it. But in, uh, and, and again, no, no specific role in the end times is assigned to him. In First Enoch 37 through 71, this is the one who comes and punishes um, sinful angels, wicked kings, evil landowners. Um, he's given a specific role. And then in the New Testament, Jesus assigns that role to himself and says, yes, at the coming of the Son of Man. Okay. Uh, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on this earth? He, he confirms, or at least his definition of the Son of Man himself in the New Testament is consistent with what we see in First Enoch chapters 37 through 71. Yeah. Um, Jude specifically quotes 1st Enoch. 1st Enoch 1 verse 9 is Jude verses 14 and 15. So it is at least inspired enough that you got that reference. Also, uh, Jude and and, uh, Peter's references to the angels who sinned being locked up or chained up in the uh, uh, in gloomy darkness until the judgment. Yeah, there's no in the context of 2nd Peter and Jude. It's, it's clear that the, um, the sin of those angels was a sexual sin, which can only point to Genesis chapter 6. That's the only place in the Old Testament where we see that taking place. 
but there's no reference then in the Old Testament what happened to those angels. Genesis 6 doesn't tell us. There's nothing in the Old Testament that mentions what happened. What happened to the angels back at those sons of God? What happened to them? Peter and Jude tell us they're in chains in gloomy darkness, and Peter puts them specifically in Tartarus. Um, the word translated hell in 2 Peter 2 verse 4 is Tartarosis. And uh, that, that description of these, these entities who sinned being thrown into the netherworld and bound up there, that's in First Enoch. So uh, when, when Christians say we shouldn't look at it, it's, it's weird, it's not scriptural, it's not in the... Yeah, okay, it's not in the Bible for a reason, but um, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Peter and Jude confirm aspects of the story from Genesis 6 that are only found, the only Jewish writing in which they're found is uh, First Enoch and other Second Temple, Jewish, uh, uh, Second Temple Jewish literature, but most prominently in First Enoch. So, yeah, I get it. It's not, I, I don't argue that it ought to be in the Bible. Um, even though some of the early church fathers did. But it's clear that the early church fathers had a pretty high opinion of it because when you read the writings of every early church theologian, every early Christian theologian until the time of Augustine in the early 5th century, uh, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Athenagoras, uh, uh, Pseudo-Clement, um, a number of others who I can't even remember off the top of my head, um, it's clear they had, the, the consensus was that Angels came down, commingled with human women, creating these giants who, when they were killed in the flood of Noah, became their spirits became demons. Mm -hmm. And again, that's not in the Old Testament, but it is in First Enoch. Do you think, Derek, that there's any kind of conspiracy to keep the first book of Enoch out of the, the canon or to hide it away? Or? I, I wouldn't go that far necessarily. I, I just think that... Um, people don't like having their paradigm shifted. I mean, even going back, going back, you know. No, I, I would say that, um, I, I would say that there are reasons that it is not in the old, that it is not in canon. I mean, there are some things in there about the heights of the giants being, you know, what, 4,000 L's, whatever that means. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think we can confirm that. Uh, certainly that's not, mentioned anywhere in the Bible. So it's, there are probably good reasons the Holy Spirit did not inspire the early church to include it in the canon, although the Ethiopian church did and still does to this day. But like I said, with, uh, as with the writings of other Bible scholars, I mean, we hold all the respect in the world for Dr. Michael Heiser and the unseen realm and uh, reversing Hermon but we wouldn't suggest it. But, you know, even, even going back further to guys like, um, uh, you know, Jonathan Edwards and uh, um, some of the great theologians of years gone by, uh, but we would never suggest that they should be in the, in the Bible either. So I, I, that's, that's kind of how I view it. I mean, there's some insights to be gained from this insofar as they help explain things in the Bible. When you get to some of the, the weird stuff and some of the prophetic stuff, some of the things that uh, Enoch has shown in the netherworld, all we can say from that, okay, this is how Jewish religious scholars in the centuries before the birth of Jesus thought what they thought about the the supernatural realm. Yeah, it, it definitely seems like Jesus was at least familiar with Enoch, like if he was taught it growing up or I don't know. And 
Well, I mean, given that he's God, I, I presume that <laughs> he, he knew. probably knew. <laughs> right, but he quotes it. I feel like the way that he quotes it is like the, the people that he was speaking to would have been familiar with it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like I feel like it well, was yeah. probably just something that was like taught in Sunday school, you know, like. Well, it, yeah, exactly. When he says at Caesarea Philippi, who do people say the son of man is? He mm-hmm. didn't have to stop and explain right. the son of man. They, they understood the concept. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's clear from the responses of the disciples that this was a topic of conversation. Well, some say, you know, Elijah and some say uh, the Messiah and some say, you know, so it, it clearly was something that was on their mind. And it's interesting, again, that that concept was really not found in any Jewish writing prior to the end of the first century BC, when that second, second section of the book of First Enoch was completed and completed by a community living near the north end of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus based his ministry. It's like the ground had been prepared. Gee, that would be really coincidental if we believed in coincidences. (laughs) I am not a coincidence theorist. Yeah, same. I know. That's been like my favorite part about diving into all of this stuff is like um, learning about Mount Hermon and then, yeah, like on this rock, I will build my church and all of that. Like. I think it's pretty mind-blowing. It is. And like I said, I can understand why some people don't aren't, aren't comfortable with, with First Enoch. And look, it's not a salvation issue. I mean, you can ignore First Enoch and still be saved. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's why I'm trying to be gracious in this exchange that's going back and forth on Twitter with this fellow, because I'm not trying to... Unlike years ago, when, I've been, when I would have tried to bludgeon, bludgeon him into submission... Um, with my superior intellect. I've, I've learned a little bit since then, which is uh, most importantly that I'm not always the smartest one in the room. Um, it was hard to, for me to admit growing up as a kid thinking I was always the smartest one in class. It's like, eh, I'm not even the smartest one in my house anymore. But this is, I, I think, the challenge that we have as Christians, and, and Peter puts it out there, so we, we're always to be ready to give the reasons for our hope in Jesus Christ, but to do it with gentleness and respect. And, you know, again, like, like I said, I'm like that guy who's willing to pay a fiver for an argument. I'm not always <laughs> good about that. And, and, you know, so again, I don't, I don't want to be that guy who, who turns people off by making it appear that I think I'm smarter than I really am. Um, I could be wrong about a lot of this stuff. I mean, there are a lot of things that we speculate about that, and, and we try to label them as speculation because we might be wrong. Uh, the things that we do know for certain is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And that, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, that this is all about resurrection and who gets resurrected at the end of all of this. And um, in that, because that is true, and because as we can document, not just from the Bible, for, but through uh, the archaeology that's been done in and around Israel. That's a key component of the pagan religions that the Israelites confronted when they moved into Canaan, the cult of the the Nephilim, cult of the Rephaim, the spirits of the Nephilim destroyed in the flood. The Canaanites knew who they were, and they were, uh, there are texts that were discovered in the Canaanite kingdom of Ugarit about a hundred years ago that confirm this. So it's key. It's not fringe it's key to understanding the gospel message. This is a long supernatural war about who is still standing after the last Trump, us or the bastard children of the, the rebellious watchers 
from uh, what, uh, 10,000 years ago or whenever the, you know, the pre-flood era took place? Yeah, I'm all pumped up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the, the guy that you were arguing, or not arguing, graciously going back and forth with on Twitter, that wouldn't happen to be Ken Ham, would it? Because I saw that Doug Van Dorn had written a, a lengthy response to a tweet that Ken Ham had made essentially agreeing with and backing the, the Sethite view. Is it, are you talking about Ken uh, Ham? No, Eric? it's not, it's not, it's not Ken Ham. Uh, okay. I, I <laughs> saw references to Ken's tweet and, and I know that he's got that, that view of, um, uh, of Genesis chapter six. And all I can say is, well, you know, God bless him. Uh, no, it's, it's somebody else. Uh, there, there was someone who'd uh, posted something about, uh, uh, just, just kind of a real snarky comment about Enoch being the book that Paul had in mind when he warned Titus against um, w- worthless uh, Jewish myths or something to that effect. And uh, I just responded and said, that happens not to be the case. Um, First Enoch was held in high regard by the apostles and the early church. And then somebody else chimed in. And again, this has been ongoing now for a couple of days. I haven't told Sharon about this because Sharon's advice to me on this is just look, just don't look, just don't just drop it. Just leave it alone. Um, but, but again, I I find this a a motivator and maybe this is a character flaw on my part because I want to prove that I'm right, or at least find out if I'm wrong. I don't want to be out there making these claims if I'm sticking my foot in it, you know, um, which I've done in the past. But I will say that this exchange has kind of inspired me to um, dig deeper into not just the Book of Enoch, but what scholars think about the Book of Enoch, uh, yeah. like Mike Heiser, like George W. E. Nicholsburg, and others who have written on this. Uh, I mean, there's there's a whole like subgenre of uh, Second Temple Jewish literature studies just devoted to the the books of Enoch. When we say Enoch, we're generally talk, talking about First Enoch. There's a second Enoch and a third Enoch, and those were written in the Christian era, and they're pretty weird. And I don't even want to, I don't have the time to go into those. But first Enoch, because it is referenced by the apostles, um, it, it, it was some of the teachings of John the Baptist, for example, like the idea, the concept of uh, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's referenced in first Enoch, the book of the parables. Uh, it's not in the Old Testament. It certainly was not, would not have been um, welcome at, by the Essenes at Qumran down near the Dead Sea. They were very, very uh, legalistic. You had to follow all of their rules to be forgiven. The Essenes in the north were a little more gracious, apparently. And it, I think it's very possible that John the Baptist was a member of that Essene community near the town of Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from. That's where scholars believe they were from. There, there's... Uh, a series of cliffs that were occupied in the second and first centuries BC overlooking the town of Magdala. And it's, it's really cool when you go to Magdala on the tour and uh, look up there, see all these holes in the side of the cliff. It's like, wow. So these guys were living up there. And while they were living up there, looking out of their caves and seeing Mount Hermon in the distance, somebody up there 2000 years ago was writing this stuff about the chosen one, the anointed one, the son of man who would come and bring justice to earth and punish the wicked angels, the wicked kings, wicked landowners, and so on. Um, and then just as they're done, Jesus, John the Baptist are born 
And 30 years later, they're teaching that stuff in that same place. Um, yeah, there, there will be a couple of new chapters I hadn't planned on in the book that Sharon and I are, are working on for later this year. I was going to ask you if, if this was going to inspire you to write your, your next book. Well, we're already working on it. It's uh, called The Gates of Hell. And so we were already working on that. The Gates of Hell, of course, is a reference to, uh, to Jesus and the, uh, the confession of Peter at Caesarea Philippi, the, pe- the Grotto of Pan. It's where you know, Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, oh, well, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Ah, oh, yes. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And interesting, he mentions Jonah right there because, you know, Jonah, three days in the belly of the whale. Um, anyway, I, I think Jesus knew something that he had not yet disclosed to the disciples at that point. Um, yeah. But then he says, you know, I, on this rock, this 9,200 foot mountain behind me, that is essentially the Canaanite version of Mount Olympus, where all the gods that the pagan gods meet uh, on this mountain, I will build my church, my assembly and the gates of hell, which is this big cave right over here that everyone knows is the entrance to the netherworld, uh, that, will, that the gates of hell will not prevail against my, my congregation. So um, we were already working on that. And this stuff is just like, okay, this, this fits into all of that. Uh, the idea that Jesus was baptized north of the Sea of Galilee was something I didn't expect to um, stumble into. And when I say stumble into it, I... I think I, I must have, you know, some, <laughs> some angel from the heavenly, uh, like, uh, library or something kind of nudging me in the right direction. Cause I, I wouldn't find this stuff on my own, but, um, it, it's, it's amazing how these pieces fit together. And, um, it, the, the, the baptismal site of, of Jesus, um, the King James version, version mentions in John verse 128 that when John is confronted by scribes and, uh, uh, and Levites sent by the uh, Pharisees in Jerusalem to find out who John is and why he's baptizing this way, um, John 128 says these things happened in, or, yeah, in Bethany across the Jordan, which means east of the Jordan River. Uh, the King James says Beth Abara. In the Greek, the word is uh, Bethania. But uh, in the third century, the early church theologian named Origen went and looked. He, he traveled to Palestine from Alexandria, Virginia, or Ale- Virginia, Alexandria, Egypt, not Alexandria, Virginia, uh, Alexandria, Egypt, to find Bethany. And he couldn't find it because there is no Bethany east of the Jordan River. So he said it must be this place called um, House of the Crossing, Beth Abara, which is why the um, King James still has it. Uh, Beth Abara in John one twenty eight to this day, but um, and this this was odd because Origen had admitted in his writings that when you looked at the most uh, reliable and the oldest texts of the Gospel of John, uh, and again he's he's writing what about uh, two hundred years after the resurrection, Origen said yeah it is Bethania but that can't be right because there is no Bethany east of the Jordan River. So it must be this other place. Well, our modern Bibles say Bethany because they went back to the original Greek, the Bethania. But in 1877, an explorer for the Palestine Exploration Fund, uh, a friend of a friend of Sir Charles Warren, who found that uh, stone, that uh, inscription inside the temple on the summit of Mount Hermon, a fellow by the name of Claude Condor, was trying to find Bethania. And he uh, wrote that it's probably a transliteration of the Latin name Botania, 
which was the Latin version of Bashan. So, okay, that moves the baptismal site of Jesus 90 miles north from near Jericho to the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Bashan across the Jordan. Well, that's really interesting because Bashan is covered with megalithic monuments to this cult of the dead. There are more than 5,600 dolmens that have been found in Bashan, that land east of the Jordan River. And uh, as we said, there's this megalithic site very close to ancient Bethsaida. That's like a smaller version of Gilgal Rephaim. It's like 10 miles west of Gilgal Rephaim on the bank of the Jordan River. So, um, yeah, Jesus baptized in Bashan across the Jordan. Interesting. It was like he was declaring war on this cult of the dead right from the beginning of his ministry. And that just seems to validate what we're talking about as far as this supernatural view of Genesis 6. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That's got some pretty incredible implications it, as it far does. as that goes. Well, and then you, you take that a step further. And uh, in Matthew 4, he um, mentions the, uh, the move of Jesus to Capernaum from... Nazareth, after John the Baptist was arrested, uh, beginning of verse 12 in Matthew 4, Matthew quotes from uh, prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, which is the messianic prophecy that includes uh, that very famous line that we hear every Christmas, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Okay, so Matthew quotes from that in Matthew 4, beginning at verse 12. Now, when he had heard, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The way of the sea, that's the Via Maris, that's the famous Roman road that led from Egypt up to the Sea of Galilee, and then it traveled up the valley through which the Jordan River flows between Mount Hermon and the Sea of Galilee until you reach the site of ancient Hazor, and then it branches off to the northeast to go towards Damascus. And of course, beyond the Jordan, again, means east of the Jordan River, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So Isaiah was describing that region in, old, in ancient times called Bashan as Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, here's the money quote, verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, remember, again, Jesus baptized in the Jordan, just north of the Sea of Galilee, at the south end of this valley, between Mount Hermon and the Sea of Galilee. It is surrounded by dolmens on the hills on either side of that valley. Valley, it used to be a, a great big marsh called the Hula Marsh, uh, Marsh H-U-L-E-H. -E the Israelis drained it in the 1950s to uh, uh, get rid of malaria. Um, so you've got all of these dolmens around the, uh, th this, this valley through which the Jordan River flowed. And Matthew says that Jesus moving to Capernaum at the south end of this valley was bringing a light to people dwelling in the region and the shadow of death. Is that valley through which the Jordan flows the valley of the shadow of death? We think it is. 
In fact, when we were there with Doug Van Dorn, Doug and Janelle Van Dorn, we visited a cluster of dolmens at the north end of that valley near a, a kibbutz called the Shamir uh, kibbutz. And this is that uh, dolmen with the 50-ton capstone. So, I mean, you know, we were climbing around inside this dolmen with like 100,000 pounds of stone hanging over our heads. That's as much as two fully loaded 18-wheel flatbed trailers. And uh, it's like, okay, how did they get this put into place 5,000 years ago? Yeah. Archaeologists say that that dolmen and that dolmen field around that Shamir kibbutz, there's like 400 dolmens there. That was the center of the ancient dolmen building culture on the Golan Heights and in and around the Hula Valley. So, um, and it's the only dolmen that's been found north of like Yemen that has petroglyphs on the underside. So fascinating stuff. We were very excited to find that there is a way for our buses, our tour buses to get right up to it. So we're, we're going back there next year. That's so cool. So when you're describing this, I'm just, I'm just imagining King David writing these words, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And I'm just imagining him going through that valley, just being surrounded by, by demons, <laughs> the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, man, it's Wow. No, I, I think you're right, because that area certainly was known, even in the centuries before David, there are references to that valley and that uh, marsh that was there in some of the, the Canaanite texts from Ugarit, because uh, in the Baal cycle, there's at one point where uh, just before Baal confronts the, uh, the god of death, Mot, and is dragged off to the netherworld, uh, Baal, let's be polite, copulates with a cow. Um, and it's probably in that area. And there's another reference to that, uh, that marsh uh, in another story where the war goddess Anat uh, takes down a, uh, uh, a bull. So it was known. Well, and then there's the epic of Akat, which is a, uh, a story of a young man who's the son of a king named Daniel. You know, Akat is given a bow by the, the craftsman god, a magic bow, and the war goddess Anat wants it. And Akat says, essentially, uh, you can't give me anything I need. She promises him immortality. He says, you don't have that power. And besides, what are you going to do with a bow? You're a girl. Well, <laughs> here's a pro tip. Never insult the deity who's wearing a belt made of human skulls. That's a bad idea. So she has him killed. And the father, Daniel, goes looking for him. And three times in this epic poem, it says, when I find him, I will mourn for him. I will mourn for him, and I will bury him in a tomb for the underworld gods. That's a reference to the Rephaim. It's, uh, the cognate in Hebrew would be Elohim Eretz, the spirits of the underworld. Well, three times he looks, and he, and he can't find him. And finally, the fourth time, he finds him, and he says, I will mourn for him, and I will bury him in a tomb at Kinneret. That's the name of the Sea of Galilee. So, and there are other geographic clues in that poem as well that point to that region. So even as far away as what today is the border between Syria and Turkey on the Mediterranean coast, they knew that there was something connected to the netherworld about that region around the Sea of Galilee, which includes Bashan, Bashan to the north and east of the Sea of Galilee. Th this, this was not something that Moses and the Hebrews invented. 
This was well known before the Hebrews even moved into the territory. The underworld gods were buried in tombs at the Sea of Galilee and in that region around it. That valley through which the Jordan River runs, surrounded by uh, dolmens on the hills overlooking the valley. The, val the region to the east, ancient Bashan, the kingdom of Og. The Israeli archaeologist who led the, um, the survey of the Golan Heights back in the, uh, the 80s, um, he wrote in 2014 that we can't even use the term dolmen field to, to describe clusters of these dolmens anymore because there are so many of them. We don't know where one ends and the next one begins. For all intents and purposes, the Golan Heights is one giant dolmen field. There are more of them clustered tighter together. I mean, dolmens are found all over the world. Um, from, uh, there are reports that are even some here in the United States. There, there's a bunch in Korea. Uh, there's a bunch in uh, the Arabian Peninsula. There's uh, 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 several hundred of them in the Caucasus, about 3,000, I think, in the Caucasus Mountains. But between Mount Hermon and the Dead Sea, there's something like 25,000, and about 5,600 of them are on the Golan Heights alone. So this is a big thing. It was well known in the ancient world. Bashan, a name that means place of the serpent, was literally the entrance to the netherworld. And that name applied to dolmens. Scholars have been studying dolmens for about 120 years, 140 years since the first reports came back in the late 19th century. And they still don't have a consensus as to why they were built, what they were used for. But the name derives from a Celtic language, Britonic, that literally means table. So now take that back, Whoa. Uh, Chris. To, yes, now you're seeing the connection <laughs> in Psalm 23. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I set yes. all of that up just to set up Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Sharon did a presentation on the 23rd Psalm at a conference we spoke at um, at a church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, about, uh, oh, two years ago, spring of 21. And she was teaching on this and explained what dolmens were. And then she got to that line in the 23rd Psalm. And I heard 300 people all go, <gasps> at the same moment. <laughs> they did what I just did. <laughs> yes, exactly. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And uh, man, it is, it, it is so astonishing when you see that and realize that that is what, when we go back next year, we are going to do that teaching on the 23rd Psalm at that Shamir Dolman with the 50 ton capstone wow. in the, in sight of Mount Hermon. Didn't David write this when, when, um, Saul was trying to kill him? Am I off on that? Was he, was he kind of out in the cold running, running from Saul trying to trying to survive during that time period? Do you remember? I would have to look that up. I don't know. I don't know. We, we, did, we did visit another site um, on the northwest corner of that valley, the Hula Valley, which again, we, we believe is literally the valley of the shadow of death. There was a city there that was mentioned in the story of David uh, called Avel Beth Ma'aka, where a... Um, a rebel against David uh, tries to lead an uprising. It fails. He flees to the very north of Israel to this, um, uh, to this town of El Beth Ma'aka. And David's general, Joab, follows him there. 
Now, if you look at a map today, this is very near the village of Matula, M-A-T-U-L-A, which is just about the northernmost village in all of Israel. It's a little finger of Israel that extends up into Lebanon. And um, we, we went there because a scholar by the name of Edward Lipinski in writing a paper on the abode of El. Where, where did the Canaanite creator God El live? What was the abode of El? And he concluded that it was Mount Hermon. Um, but in going through all of the information that was available to him, and I've had to read that paper like 20 times to get my head around it because it's just so rich with stuff. He mentions that that region around Mount Hermon in the northern part of the Galilee is connected to a number of supernatural uh, traditions in Jewish writing. And being a secular scholar, you know, he's not ascribing the influence of the Holy Spirit or anything like this to uh, Enoch or the Bible or any other writing. He's just pointing out that in First Enoch, you've got the, the watchers who um, did what they did on the summit of Mount Hermon. And then Enoch receives in, in a dream uh, after the watchers approach him and say, uh, here, take, take our you know, petition to to uh, the Lord of spirits, and maybe he won't punish us. Maybe he'll let us back up into heaven. And Enoch receives the answer from God in a dream while he's sleeping by the waters of Dan. Okay, well, the waters of Dan, Dan is at the foot of Mount Hermon. We visited Dan. You see the little stream that's running there. That's one of the uh, sources of the Jordan River. And then he delivers God's judgment to the watchers who are weeping at a place called, and in the book of First Enoch, it looks like it's spelled Abel, Maine, A-B-E-L-M-A-I-N. You know, English, we'd read it and say, Abel, Maine. What is that? Well, Lipinski points out that means, in Hebrew, that's Avel, Maim, which means waters of weeping. And then he says, this is probably where the Ayun stream descends into the Hula Valley next to Avel, Beth, Ma'aka, this ancient city. So we're like, okay. Can we find that on a map? Oh, look, there's a, there's a park there, the, uh, the, the Ion Nature Preserve, and there's the waterfall. So when we went out there early, we had Aaron Lipkin um, take us there. Actually, one of his tour guides, uh, probably the best tour guide in Israel, uh, Yeshai Avatal. We love Yeshai. Uh, and he took us there. So we visited that waterfall, which, according to First Enoch, is where Enoch delivered God's judgment to the weeping watchers and said, nope, you're not getting back up. Um, now, again, what does that mean? Did it really happen there? We don't know. We don't know. But for some reason, the authors, author or authors of First Enoch chapters 1 through 36 thought it was important. You had all of these sites located around Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, the watchers descend. The foot of Mount Hermon, Enoch receives his dream. And then a little further west there at this waterfall next to Avel Beth Ma'aka, he delivers God's judgment. Then you've got another second temple uh, writing called the Testament of Levi, where Levi is taken up to the summit of Mount Hermon and receives revelation. Okay, what that tells us is that in the minds of Jews living during the second temple period, third, second, first centuries BC, that region between the Sea of Galilee and Mount Hermon was supernaturally charged. It was important. But like I said, we can also carry that back a thousand years before that to the writings of the Canaanites who put 
events in the Baal cycle and that uh, story about the king whose son was killed by the war goddess at the Sea of Galilee. Why? Why is there this long tradition of supernatural uh, activity in and around the Upper Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, the Hula Valley, Mount Hermon, even extending that further north because the valley extends up into Lebanon as the Bekha Valley, where at the north end of that valley, you've got Baalbek with those monstrous stones for the Temple of Jupiter. Why did the Romans build the biggest temple to their chief god, Jupiter, in Lebanon instead of, oh, I don't know, Rome? I, I, I don't have an answer for that. All we can do is speculate. What we do know is that it was important then, and it would just be historical curiosity, except that Jesus declared his divinity at the base of Mount Hermon, then climbed Mount Hermon for the transfiguration and uh, you know, the other stuff, like being baptized there at the south end of that valley. You know, baptized there, begins his ministry, north end of the valley there, the foot of Mount Hermon, declares his divinity. Uh, yeah, I think he was making a, a, a point, sending a message to the spirit realm. I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> You're like a whole encyclopedia. Like I really one, am. One of, the, yeah. uh, <laughs> one of the greatest compliments I ever heard ha had, um, and, and this is because we respect Steve Quayle uh, so much. I mean, he sometimes makes some very outrageous claims, but he's willing to stake his reputation and his, his own resources in trying to back those claims up. And for that, I give Steve Quayle all the respect in the world. He once referred to me as a, an Encyclopedia Gilberticus. Like, <laughs> I'll own that. I will yes. own that. <laughs> but anything, awesome. I get, anything I get right, you know, give God the credit because it's not like we're inventing any of this stuff. And um, you know, we, we had a, uh, a fellow that, that interviewed Sharon and me a couple of months ago, and we were talking about this, this stuff with the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And... Um, because we've not put out the video that we, we shot all this video and we plan to put out a video called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And it'll be in the book, The Gates of Hell. Um, again, we pray we can get all this done by the end of this year. Um, and he asked, you know, if it was okay if he shared that information. I mean, are you okay with sharing this? Because, well, he was being very gracious, not wanting to share something that we didn't want released because we hadn't published it yet. And we're like, look, if God has let us see something that's new, it's not so we can build a wall around it and say and, and charge admission. It's, it's to edify Christians to say, hey, look, the rocks really are crying out. God does not ask us to give him blind faith. The evidence is there. I mean, the things that have been discovered over the last couple of years, like uh, the, the curse tablet on Mount Eval at the site of Joshua's altar, showing that Hebrew was a written language centuries before the experts thought it was. Um, in fact, there, there's another one that's less well-known. It's called the uh, Lachish Milk Bowl Ostrakhan. And an Ostrakhan is just like a broken piece of pottery. Um, Dr. Doug Petrovich wrote a paper on that just a few months ago, showing how that's even older than the curse tablet of um, found at Joshua's altar. In fact, it was probably dropped by somebody who was in Joshua's army when they sacked the city of Lachish in 1406 BC or thereabouts. Um, of course, Doug has also written the book, The World's Oldest Alphabet, showing that Hebrew as a written 
alphabetic language is much older than Phoenician. He takes it all the way back to the 19th century BC. So you got all of this evidence out there that confirms the narrative in the Bible. And we just want to share that with people because we're living in a world that's getting darker and darker. And it's like, look, folks, we don't need to give in to the demands of the world. We need to, you know, again, as Peter writes, we need to be gentle and respectful when we're sharing the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. But we don't need to buy into the worldview that the world is trying to push on us. That, uh, well, I don't, I don't want to go down a rabbit trail and get into, you know. <laughs> no, go, go there, go, go there. It. We love rabbit trails. <laughs> hey, you go wherever the Lord is leading you. Seriously, I, yeah, I, yeah I, I just don't want to turn this into a, a you know, discussion on social issues. But uh, you know, there are worldviews to this day that that are. Um, not progressive, they are regressive. Um, you know, we saw the, the topless display uh, on the White House lawn this past week for the Pride Month celebration. And we're supposed to believe that this represents progress. You know, it's progressive to believe that uh, there are 57 flavors of he, she, ze, zheer, you know, whatever. And really, this is just a very old belief. It is a return to the pagan worship of the ancient goddess Inanna, or Ishtar, who was praised in Sumerian hymns for being able to change men into women and women into men. And uh, the men who wanted to serve her in her temple had to, well, <laughs> remove parts. Um, so this is, this is really a very old, old form of worship. As we move farther into a, a post-Christian society, we are not, you know, Richard Dawkins must just be tearing his hair out because this is not like a, you know, a Star Trek atheistic world where all of the, the superstition of religion has been, been put aside. We're moving back into the old bloody world of the pagans. And speaking of like Dawkins and those guys that are atheists and well, uh, evolutionists, like they think that we are, right? We're evolving and that, you know, we're going to eventually be, you know, humanity 2.0. And I'm like, we are, we're actually devolving. We're not evolving. We're devolving. So to your point, things are regressing and humanity is devolving um, on the evolutionary scale. It's like the opposite. It's wild. No, you're not wrong. Um, there are diseases and, uh, you know, autoimmune things that we are suffering now that uh, our ancestors never had to deal with. Part of it may be uh, the chemicals that are being put into our hyper-processed foods, but, you know, I think some of it too is just genetic stuff. I mean, second law of thermodynamics, things tend to, you know, break down toward a, a get less complex, not more complicated. You know, Darwinian evolution argues that we somehow have to reverse the second law of thermodynamics. Yeah. No, it doesn't work at all. Um, yeah. And the fact that, I mean, you know, like some of the allegedly like smartest minds in the country, um, you know, like Supreme Court justices can no longer <laughs> even identify what a woman yeah, is. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, are we, are we progressing? Is yeah, that I know. Progress? Johns Hopkins University, which is one of the most respected medical institutions on the planet, just put out a new inclusivity guide for language and no longer refers to lesbians as women lesbians are a lesbian according to johns hopkins university now is a non-man attracted to non-men okay yeah this 
That is unbelievable. Well, I just heard you say that. I was just listening to five and ten yeah. before this, and I heard that. Uh, it's, it's astonishing. It's astonishing. But again, it's 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 it's, right, it's like regressive. Women's rights. Well, yeah. This this is why mm -hmm. you get the LGBs who are not really on board with the TQ pluses anymore. Uh, it's it, they're they're overplaying their hand. Statistics are showing, surveys are showing that Americans are increasingly opposed to uh, key aspects of the the uh, agenda. You know, having men playing in women's sports, fewer and fewer people are on board with this idea. Um, the, the percentage of Americans who believe that there are only two genders. Now, it's still only 66%, which is astonishing, but that's that's actually up from 59% just two years ago. So the, the, the trend- There's a little bit yeah, of the, tre the trend is going the wrong <laughs> way, but it, it won't be cured until Jesus comes back at the head of that heavenly host. So our mission until then is the same as it's always been, which is to make disciples of all nations. And sometimes that means being willing to engage with people in a loving way who may not mm -hmm. hold our same worldview, who may not, um, who may even hate God for whatever reason. And, and just remember that when they're cursing us, it's not us. They're just, they're angry at God. We just happen to represent him. And that's, that's really hard to do. That's not an easy thing to do. Um, my, my natural tendency as the guy who, you know, pay a fiver for an argument is to try to debate rather than to listen and understand and say, I, I, I hear you and I understand why you feel that way. Um, I, that's not really, I'm not really good at that. Um, but that, that is what we are called to, you know, Jesus said to love our enemies. <sighs> that's hard. It's yeah. really hard. Believe it or not, I'm, I'm wired like you. I, I love a good sparring, you know, verbally and I know much less than you do, um, but I'm very fiery and I do, I just, I really have a hard time. Like I'm very justice oriented and the culture has become so aggressive and so militant and in your face that to me, it feels like simply to match energy means like a lot of aggression is going to come from me toward, right, you know what I mean? Right. So like, it just makes it harder to answer gently because it's like, well, you're not being, you know, but then, but I know. So it's something I've been praying about a lot and like I think God is like softening my heart a lot and I'm reading, you know, the wisdom books in the old Testament. I know a soft answer turns yeah, away yeah. wrath and, you know, so I'm, I'm really trying, but it, it's really I, hard. I've seen that it happen a few times when, when somebody's come at me really aggressively and um, my initial response is the one that I delete and then start over. And um, the soft <laughs> answer actually has worked. And, and there are times when it won't, yeah. when the person is just, you know, not going to, listen uh and not going to respond positively no matter what and uh, you know jesus command to the disciples in that case was look if they won't listen to your preaching then shake the dust from that town that village from your sandals as a reproach and move on uh, rather than continuing mm -hmm. to try to engage so that, that's what i'm trying to learn I'm trying to learn at the age of 61 i'm not the smartest guy out there and arguing is not always the best way to um, make disciples. Hey, I will brag on Chris for a second here because because Chris and I butt heads a lot, and like he is a primate. Just a micro example is, you know, like we will disagree, and Chris actually is so good at the soft answer, and like it does, it just you know it's so disarming, and I'm like, man, that was so godly of you, and I'm not even mad anymore. <laughs> Well, you know, I used to I used to serve warrants and subpoenas, and so 
I figured out fairly quickly in those those times when people were angry and wanted to fight me that uh, I figure out how, how to uh, they call it verbal judo trying to like flip the situation uh, verbally to where it doesn't ex- uh, escalate to a, a physical physical fight that combine combined with the fact that I'm just a big a big teddy bear um, who I'm, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Like I was in the air force. My brother was in the Marine Corps. He was a combat vet. I'm like, I just, I don't, I don't have that in me. So, you know, can't we all just get along? You know, that's my, yeah. No. <laughs> and, that, um, and that's really a good attitude to take. The, 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 the difficulty is balancing that with standing on, on truth and saying, okay, look, I understand why you feel this way. And maybe there's some issues in your, you know, whatever that, Folks may have issues that have led them to a place where they're just angry at God and anyone who stands for God. Um, balancing that soft answer to turn away that wrath while at the same time not rolling over and, and saying, okay, well, yeah, uh, we, we'll agree that your worldview needs to be um, embraced and endorsed and celebrated. Um, the it's It's really difficult, but you know, if it was easy, we'd all be doing it already. So, and it's, it's very difficult when we're talking about conversations online, almost impossible. Yeah. I would say yeah. it's way easier when you're face to face with someone. Like I used to do like street evangelism when I went to school in Philly and we're about to Philly. Ask, um, so I went to school in Langhorne at Philadelphia Biblical University, okay. and I would go I would go down to Temple, um, and I would evangelize uh, on Temple's campus. It's an op- open campus, so right. some people, students, others would just be people kind of coming through because it's right in the in the middle of the city. And yeah, I mean, one thing I found like if if you treat people with dignity and respect, and and you love them. Not everybody, to your point, some people are going to just, they're going to be angry. They're not going to give you the time of day and that's fine. You, you know, shake the dust from your sandals. Like that's, that's really all we can do in those situations. But I did, I found that a lot of people that were um, a little, you know, hostile a little bit as I'm just asking questions and just engaging with them, having back and forth conversation, a lot of people would be like, Hmm, that's interesting. I haven't thought about it that way. And I, I wasn't trying to like, you know, uh, see how many people I could convince to, you know, give their life to Jesus um, that day on the spot. Usually it was, it was mostly like, obviously if the opportunity came up, minister, like lead them, all that stuff, just planting seeds, you know, just trying to show them like, Hey, Christians aren't these just mean, angry, judgmental people. Like we can be portrayed to be a lot that's that's kind of what my experience has been online complete opposite i don't even yeah, have yeah. conversations anymore it's it's probably best and that's why sharon's recommendation to me is just to you know, don't don't engage don't do this but hey you know what i'm 101st fighting keyboardists you know that's <laughs> yes i love that but you know what i think it's important too i just don't have I don't have the, I actually don't have the patience for the online conversations because it's just exhausting. I'd rather sit down and have an actual conversation with someone. But I think what's important, Derek, for people that are watching you engaging in that conversation, it's kind of like watching a debate. When, When you're watching a debate, 
the the two people debating, they're not really trying to change the mind of the other person because they know they're not going to, right? If you're debating someone that's that really knows their stuff, it's the people that are watching or listening to the debate. Those are the people that right. you have an opportunity to influence. So I think there is a place for for it. So I'm I'm glad you're doing it. I just I don't have the the energy because I think people that are are going to take the time to read through those responses, if they're on the fence, you know, you never know, you know, which way you could could push them positively, you know. Right, and, and if they're looking in from the outside and they see you behaving badly, it does not reflect well on our king. If we are ambassadors for our king, we really need to represent him well and remember that in all things. And sometimes it's hard to do when you know you want to smite the other guy with the uh, the power of you know a thousand burning suns or whatever but uh, yeah it's righteous it, anger yeah. it's, it's easy know. to justify it to yourself by saying well this is righteous anger god is on my side and so i'm right but that may not be how it's perceived by the other person certainly and it may not be perceived that way by people looking in from the outside so yeah i've I've yeah. learned to use multiple drafts of responses <laughs> to try to soften them a bit. But the, the other thing too, is that, uh, is it the best use of my time? Not always. Um, and, and again, that's, like I said, that's my weakness, enjoying a good, enjoying a good debate, enjoying a good argument. Um, yeah. uh, and that is taking time away from other things that I could be doing perhaps that are maybe more productive. So. <laughs> Well, I think it's good to speak up and stand your ground sometimes. I know I feel like most believers who I know are a lot more willing to just immediately be like, you know, like I'm not going to like not willing to speak or stand up, you know, especially on social media. Um, And so, yeah, it's definitely have to use discernment. Coming back to Ecclesiastes, though, um, Ecclesiastes 3, a time for everything, you know, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. So I think it's just kind of like, Lord, which time is this? <laughs> what time is yeah, it right now? Yeah. Like, time to speak, time to keep silent. Well, in this in this case, yeah. it just, um, I don't know. And, and if I'm wrong, then, you know, I, I ask the Lord's forgiveness. But uh, just this um, attitude, this very flippant attitude towards um first Enoch that, that prompted my, my reply in the first case, in, in the first instance, was um, a little bothersome to me because I think that it is a book that we should at least be aware of if we're going to try to understand better what Jesus taught to the disciples. Because again, the disciples were clearly aware of it, Peter and Jude especially. But you know, again, even the, some of the descriptions that we get of uh, the afterlife and the punishment that awaits people in the afterlife who rebel, those are ideas that are in First Enoch. Now, else, just to be clear, I'm not saying that Jesus got those ideas from First Enoch. Jesus didn't need to get ideas from anybody. He didn't refer back to Daniel to make sure he was his doctrine was correct. Jesus is the author of the book, so he knows what's right and what's wrong. But the fact that then he was teaching things that are not found in any other Jewish writing prior to the second and first centuries BC in the book of First Enoch means we probably got to look at that and just you know at least compare that to what we see in the New Testament because it helps us understand better the worldview of the apostles. I'd like to be able to understand the spiritual realm and the supernatural world the way they understood it because it's not what's being taught in our churches today. And again, even the early church theologians clearly knew 
what was in First Enoch because their understanding of demonology comes right out of First Enoch. So, um, yeah, before we throw that baby out with the bathwater, maybe you should, you know, get the baby out and very gently dry it, powder it, and diaper it, and then throw out the water. <laughs> yeah. Have you read um, The Bible Jesus Read by Philip Yancey? Okay. I feel like it kind of talks about this. So it's, I haven't finished it, but it's pretty good. Hey, guys, I'd like to shift gears a little bit. I'd actually intended on asking this at the beginning of the conversation, but it was, I didn't want to, I didn't want to interrupt. It was, we just, we just went, we jumped right in and uh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to jack up the flow. Um, But Derek, are you familiar with this story out of Las Vegas about, um, oh, when was it? It happened May 1st, but the Las Vegas police department just recently released the body cam footage that shows like a green streak in the sky coming down. And then there's a nine one one call where this family claims to see these eight and 10 foot. It must, I think it was two creatures um, eight to 10 feet tall. They describe them with big, big eyes. Are you familiar with that story? Yeah. I, I've heard reports of it. I've not had the time to look into it. All right, now take a look at this Las Vegas police body cam footage from last month. The video shows a green flash across the sky. There it is. And that came just after a family made a 911 call claiming to see non-humans crashed in their backyard. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to play some of that call and interaction with police. There's, a, there's like an eight-foot person beside it, and another one's inside, and it has big eyes and looking at us. It was like a... It was like a big creature. A big creature? Yeah, like a long ten feet tall. I have many questions. Um, <laughs> the police conducted an investigation for several days. That that investigation has since closed, and ended with no concrete answers. Okay, so <laughs> an eight is, foot tall person, right? Um, big eyes staring at them, the flash fact, in the sky. Well, and the fact that they went through and actually interviewed the people, you know, with a follow up that suggests obviously the family thought they had seen something. And so, um, I just wonder if there were other. I would imagine they've scammed to see if there are other camera positions and vantage points where they could have seen something that. Giant question mark, I guess, from that green streak it, in the sky. It, it is fun to speculate. Um, it, it is interesting that this is all coming around again as uh, we've got this new whistleblower who's come forward and is uh, disclosing information. It's interesting that the uh, reporters, the journalists who are propagating the story are the same two who broke the story for the New York Times in 2017, Leslie Keen and Ralph Blumenthal, who are well-known true believers in the UFO phenomenon. Now, what what happened in Las Vegas? I don't know. I've not looked deeply into it. Um, is it possible that that somehow is connected, that, that green light in the sky in the 911 call? Possibly. Could be that they're unrelated. Do we have any documentation of the 911 call that these people actually saw? Did anyone else corroborate that information? Not as far as I know. Um, so, um, I, I am skeptical. I mean, when Josh Peck and I wrote The Day the Earth Stands Still back in 2017, it was released the week before Keen and Blumenthal published their article in the New York Times that sort of kicked this whole thing off. It seems like this is a reboot of the official disclosure that they tried to launch in December of 2017. Um, Tucker Carlson, in his first Tucker on Twitter broadcast, which got, oh, I, I think he's got like 125 million views 
uh, as of this recording, which is interesting because in the last month before Fox News took him off air, his nightly program got about 3.4 million views per show. So on Twitter, he's doing far better than Fox News ever did with him on the air. He was criticizing the corporate media for not telling us the truth, not telling us important things. And he used this story, the UFO disclosure story, as an example of what, what they're not telling us. He said, you know, by any rational means, this ought to be the biggest story on earth, the existence of extraterrestrial life. Tucker's a smart guy, and I agree with a lot of what he says. His third episode, especially on uh, the reason Trump is being prosecuted, is probably the fact that he has opposed these eternal wars that the United States has gotten itself mired in because they are very profitable. It is selling stuff to propagate these wars. The you know the the, uh, the 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 weaponry, the ammunition, the the uniforms, the equipment. It's made the suburb suburbs of Washington D.C. the wealthiest suburbs on planet Earth. Literally trillions of dollars at stake. Trump threatened that gravy train. That's why he's being railroaded. But I disagree with Tucker Carlson when it comes to the UFO phenomenon. The uh, the Tic Tac videos, the USS Nimitz, Nimitz incident that kicked this whole thing off back in 2017. Um, it's clear that Commander David Fravor, the pilot on the F-18 that shot that, that forward-looking infrared radar video of the craft, saw what he saw. Because it was also seen by radar operators on the Nimitz and on um, the USS Princeton, which is a submarine that was uh, part of the exercises back in 20, what was it, 2004 when this took place. What's really interesting to me, though, when I started digging into this was finding out that um, the video that was released back in 2017 with the original version of the story and then was confirmed by the USS uh, Defense Department, yeah, that's legitimate video footage last year, that video had been available on the internet since 2007. So UFO researchers knew about this why is it all of a sudden 10 years after the video had been out on the internet on YouTube that this is suddenly a big story? Uh, there's, a, there's a journalist for the New York Post by the name of Street, Stephen Greenstreet who has done some investigative work on all of this uh, disclosure since 2017. And Luis Elizondo, who supposedly was the head of this uh, program, the secret program inside the Pentagon called ATIP, turns out ATIP never existed, and Elizondo never headed up the program. ATIP was a nickname that was given to the program, if I remember the story right, by Senator Harry Reid when it became obvious that the Pentagon was very unhappy that word was leaking out that they were investigating UFOs. Uh, the actual name of the program, I can't even remember, it was some other acronym, AAW something something. Uh, so Senator Reid, the retired senator from Nevada, came up with this ATIP nickname. And Elizondo, who apparently was a DIA uh, agent or officer, retires in October. And then in December, he pops up with this story and on the board of directors of something called To the Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences, which is a collection of people from the defense intelligence complex or the military intelligence complex, um, which is the way this story has always been handled since Roswell in 1947. Whenever a story like this breaks, the intelligence community has its fingers all over it, controlling the narrative. And so you've got this group called To the Stars Academy 
that wants to get the information out there about what the government knows about this technology. We want to make this technology available for humans, and we want to do research into uh, you know, zero-gravity propulsion and this, that, and the other, and consciousness. Uh, wait, wait, consciousness, that's like a new age concept here. What, what does that have to do with traveling between the stars? Interesting, you've always got that new age connection, just as it's really curious that all of the contactees since the 1940s have received messages from the Ashtar Command or the Galactic Brotherhood telepathically. It's like, wait a minute, they, they're so technologically advanced, they've solved the immense engineering challenges in crossing the gulf between stars, and yet they cannot work a webcam. They can't send up a flare. They can't flash their headlights or anything like that to send us a message. It's always some guy getting a telepathic message, and these messages contradict. Are these the ancient gods of Egypt? Are, are, are they from uh, Zeta Reticuli? Are they from Venus? Are they from Mars? Are they from Pluto? Where are, why are we getting different messages? And why is it always telepathic? Anyway, I digress. The point to all of this is that this is distracting from something else. And this is the way it has always been since 1947. Yes, it's clear that Commander Fravor and the other men involved in that exercise, the USS Nimitz incident, saw something. Yes, it is undeniable that there were unexplainable lights in the sky that have been witnessed by thousands, if not millions of viewers around the world. And yet to this day, there is not one shred of hard physical evidence that any of these artifacts especially the ones that this uh, uh, Mr. Grush, the, uh, the, the current whistleblower, claims existed. Nobody's seen that evidence. Um, his, his attorney representing him just gave an interview with the Daily Mail in, in England and said that he was told of a story where the U.S. military recovered a craft 30 feet in diameter, but when researchers went inside after it was recovered, they found it was the size of a football stadium. Okay. Sounds like he's been watching too many episodes of Doctor Who. I mean, you know, I'm a big fan. Walk into the TARDIS. Uh, oh, it's bigger on the inside. Yeah. But then Daniel Sheehan, the attorney for the whistleblower, admits, well, no, we don't have any evidence of this. And no, I can't even tell you when this happened or where it happened. All right. Even if we concede that there are craft like the Tic Tac, which according to reports from the men on the Nimitz and the Princeton back in 2004, traveled at a speed well, well beyond anything that any known aircraft today can match, like much, much faster than the SR-71 Blackbird. It doesn't automatically follow that it came from off planet. It only means it's a craft that the observers couldn't identify. Now, why would the government then try to redirect our thinking into say, it must be extraterrestrial? Well, just as in 1947 at Roswell, they didn't want people knowing that there were Nazi scientists who'd been brought out of Germany on the rat lines working for the American government. And it's possible that in the case of these Tic Tac videos or other craft, they don't want us knowing that perhaps the Chinese, perhaps the Russians, or maybe even our own government has developed a craft that is well beyond the capabilities of anything else in the air. I mean, remember the, uh, the stealth fighter, the, uh, the Nighthawk, what was the F-117? Didn't exist officially until suddenly it pops up in Gulf War I. Whoa, <laughs> there we go. Uh, where did that come from? It was only a rumor until it was suddenly not a rumor anymore.
So I don't know. I don't know. There is no hard evidence of extraterrestrial life. We do know as Christians, however, and this is the key point, that we humans have been meddled with for literally millennia by inhuman entities, unfriendly inhuman entities who want to destroy everything that God created and called good. Boom. Amazing. I think that's that's a great point to end on. That was, that was fantastic. Derek Gilbert, we appreciate you coming on. So I got to say, we're going to plug all your stuff, uh, View from the Bunker. Love it. Obviously, um, my f- favorite thing that you do on there is with uh, our beloved Dr. Judd Burton, um, Brian Gadawa, who's been on the show a couple times. Love him. He's, uh, yeah, I've, I've waxed poetic about him before. Um, love, love his books. When I was first learning about the Divine Council worldview, stumbling on Heiser stuff a few years ago, I'm like trying to wrap my head around this. And then I was listening to Paranormal and they mentioned that he was an author. So I looked up his stuff and I read, I mean, I flew through his right. series, the Chronicles of the Nephilim. Um, and it, it kind of helped to give me a kind of a, an, a picture, you know, in my mind of what all that could have looked like. So love his stuff, love your work with the uh, Skywatch TV, um, everything that you are, all are doing with your, your ministry. Absolutely fantastic. If people want to follow you, um, where do they need to go? Best place is probably gilberthouse.org. That's uh, kind of the central hub for everything that we do. Gilberthouse.org. And from there, we link to View from the Bunker, my personal website, Sharon's personal website, Unraveling Revelation, um, you know, uh, PID Radio, our podcast that started back in 2005. We're doing that again on a weekly basis. All of that linked at gilberthouse.org. And we encourage people that when they're there to click on the link that says Get Our App, because um, all of our content goes through the app, which uh, brings it into, you know, iOS, Android, Amazon, Kindle Fire, Roku, Apple TV. And someday at some point, I or a guest will probably say something that'll get us yanked off YouTube. So even though we get a lot of traction, especially for the Iron and Myth episodes with Judd, Brian and Doug on uh, YouTube, and we're we're thankful for that, you know, it's kind of a Mars Hill, a digital Mars Hill. Um, At some point, they'll probably yank the program, yank our channel, and uh, so we just encourage people, okay, if you're watching on YouTube, God bless you. Now take a moment, pause, go get the app because this program will be there and the Christian company that produces the app and manages it for us, they will not cancel us. So awesome. I've got the app. Yeah. And I just wanted to say thank you so much. I mean, um, I do not watch the news like on mainstream media. I don't. And like, I just skywatch TV, like five and 10 and yeah, five and 10 is where I get my news. And that's where I tell everyone to get their news too. I'm just like, turn off that garbage. So yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate yeah, that. Huge fans. Um, I also wanted to pass on the message. Nick Fisher wanted me to ask you if you tried slash liked the coffee. <laughs> the Kevlar Joe coffee. We have not, but we need to get in touch with Kevlar Joe's because we love us our coffee here at Gilbert House. And uh, so, you know, that's the one one um, luxury that we allow ourselves. We've got like three different coffee makers here, depending on whether we want uh, something fast, uh, we want the really good uh, French press, or if we feel like some Nespresso. Uh, yeah, we've we've got uh, lots of lots of coffee here. Well, we we Love have that. a partnership with uh, Kevlar Joe. We have uh, it's called the Bigfoot Blend. 
Um, saw that. <laughs> and, and we have one coming out soon. Actually, Nick messaged me today saying it's going to be ready very soon. We have a, a new blend coming out called Dog Man's Delight. Um, there you go. If, if you will message me um, a mailing address for you, we'll, uh, we'll get you some, some Kevlar Joe's shipped to you. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Awesome. All right, Derek Gilbert. Nick, we need to talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're trying to get Nick to come um, to the Go There for conference too. Oh, so, that'd be I wonderful. Mean, kind of like a handful of our members and we'll have a little powwow out there. It'd be really fun. So, Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Please tell Sharon we said hello and pass along that we're huge fans of her as well. Thank you. I certainly will. God bless you. I really All appreciate right. it. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Came down to top vanity, brought the proliferation of humanity. A fallen sons of the most high God took advantage of the planet he made, forming a holy alliance of evil and look at the daughters of Adam and Bain. That the flood rain came to restore his creational order to how he arranged. Put the disembodied spirits of the giants still want a war, still want a killing accord. To see the blood of the innocents spill on the floor. That's the demoniac and the kind of issue with combined. The healer restores image bearers in his second chance when he coming back, cause he bringing a sword. This ain't a planned sermon, it's a welcome to Camp Herman. Yeah. Welcome to Camp Herman. This ain't a planned sermon, it's a welcome to Camp Herman. Yeah. Welcome to Camp Herman.